Yeah, I'd like you to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. Just going to read a couple of lines here, starting with verse 17. This is Jethro talking to Moses. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. It says, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before going God, before God, and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a, a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And so this is the word of God, brothers and sisters. So as, as I was preparing for the sermon, uh, you know, I, I don't pay as much attention as I probably should uh, to how the week goes because I, I got home Sunday night and I started setting up for the next chapter in Philippians. Uh, and, I, I, and I'm sitting there, I'm working on it. And Tuesday, Kelly walked into my office and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on the sermon. She goes, oh, you're in Philippians. I said, yeah, it's the next chapter, right? <laughs> And she said, you know, we're doing elder insulation on Sunday. I went, who came up with that? She said, you did. I had completely forgotten. Uh, so it, we'll, we'll do the next chapter in Philippians next week. Uh, but today, I, you know, I want to talk to you about elders for just a second. And it kind of reminded me, I was out in the community. And, you know, I try and meet with other pastors every now and then. And I was talking to one of them on Wednesday about the elder insulation. She said, so you have a special service where you, you bring your elders on. I said, well, yeah, you know, it's a community thing, and we are an elder-led church. And he said, well, I don't believe in that. There's no scriptural basis for it. And I said, well, there, there is. I mean, if we go to Second Timothy, we go to, you know, the uh, Second Th- uh, Thessalonians, the, you know, it, it's all there. He said, yeah, but that was New Testament. <laughs> and that was kind of new for me, because usually I hear, oh, yeah, but that was Old Testament, and so I thought, well, where, where did the idea start? Where do we get the idea for elders? It's here in Exodus 18. And so where does the concept of elders originate? Exodus 18 has the answers. Now, let me give you some background here. In Exodus, Moses flees from Egypt, um, meets his wife. This is before the Exodus, and lives with her and her father, Jethro, Read chapter 18, it's kind of interesting because it keeps on mentioning over and over again that Jethro is, is Moses' father-in-law. But Jethro is a pagan priest, and they have two sons together. Moses is called back to Egypt to bring God's people up, but he leaves, he leaves his wife and his two sons with Jethro. And, and he goes back to confront Pharaoh, and of course, we all know what happened there. Then by God's power, he leads God's people out of Egypt, go across the Red Sea, the waters part, uh, and they're in the Sinai wilderness. And starting in chapter 15, we see God preserving things for his people. In chapter 15, we see he preserves them from thirst. Water comes out of a rock. Uh, in chapter 16, he preserves them from hunger. Uh, manna comes down out of the sky. In chapter 16, uh, 17, he preserves them from thirst again. And in chapter 18, 
He preserves them. Uh, he preserves them from defeat against the Amalekites, the first military confrontation they have. And then chapter 18, he preserves them from chaos. So this is where things begin to get interesting as far as where we are today. In the beginning of chapter 18, uh, Jethro shows up. He's got Moses' family with him. And he hears that what God has been doing in Moses' life. And, and Jethro, a pagan priest, begins worshiping the one true God. He also sees that Moses has taken on the task of counseling and leading and watching over and discipling and disciplining God's people all by himself. Now, there's well over a million people in the camp by this point. So Jethro sees that that, that's just not a great idea. Uh, It's not good for Moses, nor is it good for his people. So Jethro tells Moses this, and we, we heard it in verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties and of tens. So Jethro says, okay, you know, you're out here in the wilderness. You've been teaching them all this stuff. Take some of the ones who get it, the ones who are strong in in learning and teaching God's word, the ones who have reverence for God, the, the ones who are trustworthy and dependable and have some integrity. And here's what you do. You create some structure. Now, this is kind of new for them. And you divide them up according to their capabilities, and then you let them do what you've been teaching them, what they have been taught to do. So wisely, Moses kind of heeds his counsel, and, and that passage becomes a model for the church that we have today. All the way back in the wilderness in Sinai, somewhere around 4,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. Now, not everybody follows this template today. We get it. Okay, there are those who, who want to approach the church like it's a business and apply business practices to it. And you know something, after spending 30 years in in business management, retail management, before I came into the ministry, there, there are certainly lessons that carry over. There are lessons that apply. There are things that we can learn from that, from corporate management practice and recruiting policies and that sort of thing. But even carrying all of that and, and being immersed in that and then finding out the church is uniquely different, I, I've had more success taking biblical principles and applying them to business than I have had in taking business principles and applying them to the church. So you're not going to find a board of directors running things here at Warrington Bible Fellowship. You're not going to see us taking extensive surveys of the community to find out what they would like in a church. And you're probably not going to hear a lot about strategy meetings and goal-oriented programs and and uh, church growth programs. And i got to tell you something, I've I've seen them all over the last 25 years. I've seen every church growth program that's out there, and they're all earthly-oriented. It's okay. There's nothing evil with it. It's just not us. It's not who we are. What you all will hear about are biblical models. You'll hear about prayer, about faith in God's Word. You'll hear about things like teaching, discipling, and outreach, and, and moving into the community, Those are the tools that Moses used, and those are the tools that we use here at Warrington Bible Fellowship. 
See, Moses was a redeemer sent to God's people, sent to Israel, to bring them out of bondage. But Moses was just a shadow of the one redeemer that would come, the true redeemer, Jesus Christ, sent to bring God's children out of eternal bondage to sin once and forevermore. So why do we have elders? Well, it's the model God gave us. A plurality of leaders, watch this, because it's the model we see here in Exodus 18, a plurality of leaders elected by the congregation operating in obedience to and under the authority of God's chosen redeemer. Back then it was Moses, now it's Jesus Christ. And today, today is one of those days we get to demonstrate this. Today is a day that as a body, we take a step forward and we do it together under the guidelines that we just found in Exodus 18. Today we look to expand our elder board at Warrington Bible Fellowship. For me, it's a big event. Uh, we, we delegate the duties of leadership. We recognize the giftings that God has placed among us and put here in this body of believers. We're here today to install, listen carefully, to install two servants, two servants of God. We're not electing a king. We're not appointing emperors. We're not giving people dominion. We're asking people to serve us as a body, David Algren and Bill Schwetke, as members of our elder board. Now, those of you that have sat in their classes know them. You're already aware of their giftings. You know how uniquely gifted they are. Uh, and you know how uniquely gifted they are to fill the positions that we have elected them to fill. But I'm going to let you hear from them personally. So as they step into this position of responsibility, I'm going to ask David Algren to come forward and share with us. And right after him, Bill Schwetke will come and share with us as well. David? Feedback. Yes, sir. I was thinking about there we go. still got a lot of feedback. Closer, closer. Okay, now I'm closer. Hopefully closer to you all too. So I was thinking when I was asked to come up here to speak about having a day. Speak about what it means to be an elder and the fact that you have chosen to choose me and Bill. And uh, I started thinking about how I got here. I think it's kind of important to understand a little bit. I'm not going to go into my childhood when I was born and, you know, seven pounds, 11 ounces. I'm not going there. But just so you understand a little bit of how I got to this point, because it's, I think it's important to understand a little bit more about who I am in Christ and how the giftings came and how the calling has come. And so I, I look back and I start thinking about how after I came to Christ in September of 1980, how God brought me out of the darkness of the world into the kingdom of his light. And I was saved in basic training in the military of all places. You know, it wasn't a, a foxhole conversion, but it was just something that God had led up to on my whole life. And at that point, God opened a world to me of his word that I, I never knew about. 
you know, I'd heard spatterings of the Bible, but I never really understood any of it. And so he sent me to a uh, defense language institute to learn a foreign language. And while I was there, I was growing in Christ and reading about missionaries. And I started thinking, well, hey, I'm in the military. You know, he gave me this ability. Maybe he wants me to be a missionary. I don't know. So as I started reading, which I love to do, to read, I started reading biographies of people like William Carey, who went to India and struggled there in spreading the gospel. And one that most people never heard of, Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary, who went to Burma. And the struggles he went through, he spent his entire life, and it took years, I think it was like seven years or so, for one convert. But while he was there, he used his abilities to, tr to come up with an alphabet and translate the Bible into their language that he put on paper. And his faithfulness inspired me to think, well, maybe I could, should do that, but no. And then I read about Hudson Taylor, who often said in the China Inland Ministry, as a missionary, that uh, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. So I said, well, God, if you want me to do this, you'll give me the ability, you'll give me the desire, like it says in Philippians 2, to do these things. And then I started reading about Jim Elliot in The Shadow of the Almighty, about his biography and the things he went through and how God led him and called him and used him to, to reach a nation that he died reaching, and his wife later saw the fruit of that labor, but the others went with him. So all these things, so I started learning and, and thinking about, well, maybe God wants this, maybe he doesn't. And as I went through my Christian life and grew in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, I, I started digging into his word, finding out what he wanted me to do. And over the 21 years I was in the military, he used me here and there to teach, you know, to come up with Bible studies, to look into the word of God and to help others grow. And I still realized that that wasn't my calling to be a missionary. So every time I'd stay in the military longer until I retired, that I knew that wasn't where God was leading me. And, you know, I, I think and I thank those who helped me along the way, helped me to grow. I especially remember being involved in Florida with the navigators, going through a, a mini systematic theology about, you know, what Scripture teaches in all areas of life. And that really impacted me as well and helped me grow. And so I traveled around the country and around the world. So I met my wife in the Netherlands when I went there. I stayed in Europe for nine years. But eventually, you know, we ended up in South Carolina. And after a number of years, we moved up here for the job. In 2013, the beginning of 2013, we came to Warrington. And after looking around and visiting different churches, we ended up in the late summer of 2013 here at WBF, and we've stayed so for the past 10 years now, we've been here. And God started using me here as well to, to serve you. He led me through Apollos after I became a member and started leading Sunday school. And so God has used me here to minister to you in word and prayer. And who knows, some of you may go to the end of the earth. He hasn't chosen that for me, but we never know. And I remember specifically early on, we used to have a meet the pastors downstairs. And I was talking to Scott Farrell at the time I was here and uh, seeing how God had led him to become a pastor. And 
I started thinking, well, maybe that's what God is saying. Mm, not exactly. But I started wondering. And this verse that had been nagging at me for a while came to mind. I shared that with God. And you know, I'd been thinking about this for a while. And I kept saying, why is God showing me this verse? And it was from Colossians 1, 28 and 29, which says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect or mature in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. And when I think of that, that's, I hate to use the term life verse, but it's one that God was using to change my life and vector it, change the direction of it to where he wanted me to go and to be. And so looking back now, it makes sense. At the time, I was still confused. Like the missionary thing. Is that where God wants? Is this where? You know, what, is he telling me to become a pastor? Is that what my calling is? All I knew is I wanted to help others grow in Christ by God's power and God's wisdom through his word and prayer. And that's what brought me to this point is when I was asked to become an elder. And at first I was saying, wow, that's a huge responsibility. And it is. And then the next question was looking at the qualifications. Do I meet these? Can I do this? And I started looking back again, thinking how God leads and empowers. And in Philippians 2.13, how in our sanctification, but also in our lives, it's God who works in us both to will or desire and to do or be able to do things for his good pleasure. And so... I came to the conclusion, yes, God, you are calling me to this. It's a huge calling and undertaking. It's a lot of responsibility spiritually as well as in life. But I knew now that God will supply what I need. God will supply what Bill needs. God works through us to serve you. And so I'm thinking also of another verse that God had been constantly bringing to mind over the past 43 years was from First Peter, and that's been resonating in my life as well about humbly serving and shepherding as an elder. And there, Peter was saying, the elders, as an elder, he was saying this, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And he was there. He saw it all. And also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He had a hope. Shepherd the flock which is of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So the call is to be an example in word, conduct, love, faith, and purity, as Paul wrote to Timothy. And then he goes on to say, likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. It's not a one-way street. And with that, the reminder that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he calls us, he says, thank, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time and casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. It's God who enables God who gives the power, God who gives the wisdom, God who leads and guides us for his sake and for your sake. So I think then that my commitment to you all is that I will humbly serve you by this desire God put in my heart. 
and by his enabling power and wisdom, and not by my own reasoning or intellect or background or experience or anything else, but by the calling of God in Christ. So this, then, is my covenant with you, that as you all, beloved members of WBF, I commit myself to the Lord and then to you, according to the word of God and by his leading. So I do thank you for putting your, your trust in my hands, along with the fellow elders, to serve you. Thank you. You may wonder why I'm going to be an elder. I do too. I look around, I see other people that are better qualified in my mind to, to do this than I am. And I would say simply I'm here because I've been asked. And also because of words that I've read in the Bible that I would like to share with you. Uh, to help understand, if, if I can help you understand some rather difficult words that uh, perhaps you'll see what I have seen. So let's consider faith and works. In many religions, and among some Christians, once including me, works were the only way to salvation. Yet I now know our faith is a gift from God that allows us to recognize our salvation. It's not a reward for good works. Now James, in his epistle to the Israelite diaspora, jumps right into the middle of this and talks about faith and works. I think in some ways he's been misunderstood and it has helped me to reach an understanding with James. So, particularly in chapter 3 of James' epistle, verses 14 to 16, he discusses works and faith. So what will he tell us? Faith is the foundation of our salvation. But faith is also the foundation upon which we build our sanctification by works. Without works, the foundation is barren and suspect. And in fact, James is writing this letter because somehow word has come to him that in some of the Christians among the Jewish diaspora, that there are people that are expressing faith that people, other people have doubts about. And so he's writing the letter to help people dealing with this. So let's look at why he's taken this up. The purpose, as I just explained, was to expose those who proclaim their faith, but their works show their lack of faith. While those who truly have received the gift of faith, their works are evidence of that. If the faith was false, you would lack the sense of gratitude and not be compelled to respond with works to glorify God 
your benefactor. James sees works not as the cause of faith, but the evidence of faith, an evidence of the health of our faith. And apparently, he needed to address this because there were some who were behaving differently. So let's read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, and hear what James wanted us and others to hear. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And the scripture was filled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For the body apart from the spirit is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. James began with, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then he ends those verses with, faith without works is dead. So what is it? Are we saved by the gracious gift of faith or by our works? Or do both faith and works play a role in our salvation and sanctification. James never says that we can be saved by works alone. I know many might disagree with that. It's simply not there. He would agree with Paul that salvation comes from receiving the gift of faith that allows us to accept and rely on the imputation of Christ's righteousness to those who have received the faith. Note also that James speaks of justification as a process, whereas today we'll refer to justification as a discrete act. It's done, it's complete. But his use of the word implying an ongoing process might be better translated for us to sanctification. James, indeed, 
would agree with Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works. And then might note that uh, after these verses, Paul notably closes with, so that no one may boast. This is worth a moment of our time. How many times in the Old Testament did God create conditions that left no doubt that he, not man, had won the day? Such as he did reducing Gideon's forces. Is not Gideon's defeat to the Midianites an example when his force drastically reduced to 300 Israelites defeated 135,000 Midianites. God left no doubt in Gideon's mind that Gideon's own works were not his salvation. And so James reminds us that our works are to the glory of our Savior to show him our love, respect, and appreciation not to glorify ourselves, because there is no doubt he did this, not us. James' purpose is to expose those who proclaim their faith, but whose works showed their lack of faith, while the faith of those who had truly received it is evident in their works. If your faith was false, you would lack the gratitude and not be compelled to respond with works to glorify your God, your benefactor. James sees works not as the cause of your faith, but the evidence of it. Now James gives some examples. If a brother, verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Those are James' words. Tangible, effective works that glorify God, done in response to the realization of what Christ has done for us, done with gratitude for the invaluable gift we've received and not for show is what is needed. I'll touch on that last point as well. Christ said, as told us by Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. James goes on to emphasize that his works show his faith. But someone will say, in verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And then James contrasts belief in God with faith 
and that even demons who do not receive the gift of faith know that God is real and respect his power. In verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now James gives more examples, first with the patriarch of the Israelites. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Note that faith is required, but it is completed by works, sanctification. James continues in verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, faith is required, but works are how we complete the process. Also note that justification as I said before, is a process. And now he goes to a Gentile prostitute. What a person. Go from Abraham to Rahab. She would be held in contempt by the Israelites. And he shows that everyone's works are evidence of faith. Verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So the Gentile prostitute who had only heard of the power of the Israelite God performs works in response to what she knows of God. Then James finishes with his main point. Verse 26. For the body apart from the spirit is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. With the acceptance of faith, our works are no longer tasks, drudgeries, but a joyful celebration of our salvation. And when we celebrate our salvation with works that give glory to God, we give evidence to others of our salvation. Yet though Jesus has paid all of your debt, you're still responsible for your works, your action. Matthew 12, 36. Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Also note, but I flip the page from our verses for today to chapter 3 of James, James 3, 1. We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So, Paul and James are actually in agreement. You are saved by the gift of faith, faith alone, sole fide. But that is only the first step in a process which continues 
with your reaction to salvation. So build on your foundation of faith. Let your actions speak louder than your words, but not for show, but to glorify God. Do not let your faith be barren. I hope these words in some way help you as they have helped me uh, and helped me to stand here facing a task I face with some trepidation. Uh, but thankfully, uh, I go in prayer to God and he helps me. And I ask you to join me in a brief prayer for all of us. Father, we are so grateful for the gift of faith that you have given us to help us understand the, the sacrifice that gave us our salvation. And we ask that you go with each of us as you, we know you will, as we go forward to do the things that glorify you to express our thanks for all that you have done for us. In thy son's name we pray, amen. Okay, so um, I'm going to ask David and Julia and Bill and Kat, come stand down here. Now, we're doing this as couples because you guys are one flesh, right? So the, the elder is not apart from his wife. He's one flesh with her. And they are involved in this ministry together. Uh, she will feel the pressure that... Uh, her husband goes under, she will uh, absorb each criticism that arises out of this. Not that anybody would criticize an elder or a pastor. Uh, and she will be his encourager, his support, and and uh, somebody that leads him back to the Word as well. So I, I want you to let these verses be your guide. Mark 10, starting with verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know, James and John had gone to Jesus and said, oh, we want to sit on your right and left, the positions of honor. They're kind of getting ready for the kingdom, okay? Jesus said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Paul says in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
And I charge you with this. Will you be faithful in the discharge of the responsibility that's being entrusted to you today, depending on God for wisdom and for discernment in making decisions in accordance for his will for this church? Will you seek to promote the kingdom of God, setting aside personal interests and ambitions and making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? Will you serve this congregation in humility and in love, not seeking to be ministered to, but to minister to others as Christ's servant? Will you pray for this church often? If so, say I will. I'd like you to turn around and face the congregation. Congregation, this is your charge. Hebrews 13, starting verse 17. These are some harsh words, but I want you to listen to them carefully because God has given them to us. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I charge you, Warrington Bible Fellowship, stand up for a second. Will you uphold these leaders in your prayers that they might have the heart and mind of Christ in everything they do? Will you submit to their authority as those chosen by you and by God to oversee the spiritual welfare of this church, of which you have voluntarily chosen to be a part of? Amen? Will you encourage these leaders by your support and by your participation in the ministries of this church? even as you have opportunity to do so? Will you express your thanks and your appreciation to them for their sacrificial service on your behalf in the name of Christ? If so, say, I will. Now, let's have a moment here, okay? Because as you stand and face this congregation, I want you to just look at them. Look at their faces. Because, brothers, one day, we as elders will stand before the Lord and give an account for each one of the people you see here and the people that are watching us online. May that, may that burden crush you. Yeah, you understand what I'm saying? Because we can't do this. May, may we be weighted so heavily by the burden of leadership that we have been assigned to that we have no choice but to turn to the Holy Spirit and say, have mercy on me, help, I can't do this on my own. And may you, in particular, when we reach that moment, when you disagree with something that they do, may we remember to treat each other as more significant than ourselves. These men will give an account for you on the day of judgment. Not to their condemnation. There's no condemnation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay. But there will be an account. And they can't bear that burden without the help of the Holy Spirit. But they can't bear that burden without your help as well. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward. Richard, Jimmy, stand down here. We're going to pray for these gentlemen and their wives. God bless you, Richard. Richard has a suit on. <laughs> Amen. 
I mean, you know this is an important day, right? <laughs> okay. Father, I want to thank you for these willing servants, these couples that stand before you and receive this responsibility. Help them, O oh Lord, to recognize the difficulty of the task, not only because it's hard work, but because it is kingdom work. It is your work, Father. It is opposed by the enemy, resisted by our nature as human beings. But, Father, you're an overcomer, and in Christ Jesus, we are too. I pray for their godly character, especially when their call to service might collide with their self-interest. I pray for wisdom and strength and skill, both to protect the church and to move this congregation forward in the work of the kingdom of God. Lord, we give you thanks for them. We now pray that you bless them, Father. Bless us. Lord, as we continue to walk in the unity that you've given us, Father, not as we continue to strive for unity, but continue to exist in the unity we have in Christ, Father. Open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart, that we might see your spirit moving among us in these men, in and through them, and in us, Father, as you draw us unto you, as you make us messengers of your gospel. We give you thanks in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, you can have a seat. Um, we're going to ask, uh, what better time could we have than to serve communion and, and make an expression of this unity we share? Jimmy? Can I take just a moment with you to remind us and re-remind us of what communion really is? It's Passover. Pass over that night when God's chosen people were told to leave Egypt. They did something with the blood of an innocent animal. They took hyssop, which is a leafy branch, and they took the blood of that innocent lamb or goat, and they put it in a particular pattern over the doors of their homes. Do you remember that pattern? There was a splotch of blood on each of the side posts and a splotch of blood over the lintel or the headboard of the doorway. Three splotches of blood, innocent animal blood. And then the destroyer would pass over that home. I want you to think just a moment. What pattern do those three splotches of blood create? If not the cross. Can you see it? Our Lord's bleeding wrists and his bloody head as he protected every household in Egypt that night. Jesus is our Passover. And so he asks us to remember him as our Passover, the agent who delivers us from God's righteous wrath. We celebrate that in memory this morning, don't we? As we take these elements of Christ's body and blood into ourselves to remind us, not only does he dwell in us, but he is the agent by which we are then rescued 
from our Father's righteous wrath. Jesus takes it on to himself. So as the elders and I take these elements and remember that bittersweet night when Jesus taught his disciples those last final lessons and commissioned them and readied them for the awful trauma they were about to go through. And we were talking within about 12 hours of Jesus being hung on the cross. And his love for his his disciples, that means you and me, is unbridled and cannot be ended. So as Jesus took that Passover meal and made it the first of our communion meals, may we remember now with these elements that we take, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Passover. We'll begin with the symbols of his body. On the night that our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took that bread and he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he gave them and they ate it. Because remember that the body of Christ is our only hope. It is his life alone and his body alone by which we rest on the truth that we can be made whole again and brought back into right relationship with the one true God. Only through Jesus. There is no other. For truly, Yeshua HaMashiach is our Passover. There is no other. Mighty one, this is indeed a very special moment we have with you of intimacy and communion. We now take this, your body, and we eat it. Again, on that bittersweet night, he took that cup of wine and he taught his disciples again that the Passover meal is made full in Jesus, in himself alone. 
and that that cup, that cup of salvation represented his lifeblood. Because we know, brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. We found that out in Genesis chapter 3. So now as we receive this symbol of his blood, we are again reminded that Jesus is our Passover. And we commune with him in a very special way at this very moment. Now as we claim Christ as our Passover, we take this juice into our own bodies, those which he's made for us, remembering him and all that he does, has done, and will do to the glory of his kingdom through us and for us. Take and drink. Pray with me, will you, mighty God, we do thank you so much for the beauty and the communion and the unity of this moment. How special and unique it is that you have called a people to yourself by your own life. Glorify yourself through us, mighty one, in the week we have set, that you have set before us, that we might know that you are our Passover. Indeed, for it is in your name we pray, saying together, Amen. Look, I just want to take a moment um, and share with you a couple of of church business things. Uh, Number one is uh, Jimmy has graciously agreed to be the chairman of the elder board, our head elder, uh, for at least the next two years. Thank you, Jimmy. We're looking forward to that. Um, And I want to to just share with you, you know, I... I made a little bit of joke about Richard wearing a suit, but you, you need to understand who this man is. Uh, he was with us at the beginning of the, of the church in 1979. Um, Richard will never tell you this, 
but he was one of the elemental figures in the nuclear submarine program for our Navy. Uh, and we have a man here who uh, is so humble that uh, he, he would never brag on that, but he would not wear a suit for the Admiral of the Navy, but he will for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? <laughs> you guys that are just selected have big shoes to fill. Uh, and if we can live up to the amount of service that Richard has given us over the years, uh, we can bow our heads and be thankful to God for that. Amen? Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise. We, I thank you for the people who have sat here patiently as we go through this important uh, as, asset of our life, Father, as we make this next step forward. I pray your blessing upon them. I pray your blessing on those who are watching us online, Father, uh, that we might rest in you. We might find our affirmation in you, Father, that we might find our meaning and our purpose in you and you alone. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. Next week, uh, God willing, we'll be in the next chapter in Philippians. Thank you. Um, the, uh, can I ask the elder candidates to come forward? And if you, if you want to come and greet them, you'll have a chance to talk to them for just a few minutes. Thank you.